Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike McKinnon with the Anesthesia Deconstructed Podcast. I'm sitting here with Scott Rigdon, who was a CRNA, graduated from Midwestern University in Arizona, went on to practice in an independent practice as a partner in uh, Oregon, and then ended up in a pain practice where he practices full-time pain. Scott, tell us a little bit about your trip and who you are and your history. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Scott Rigdon. I uh, left Midwestern University, uh, went straight into independent practice in Oregon and uh, practiced there for, you know, almost seven years, a little over six years. And uh, I'd been looking to move into non-surgical pain management, uh, interventional pain at the time. Non-surgical pain management is more of a new term. And uh, I couldn't get my hospital to turn the corner. I multiple times took the uh, performa to them, had uh, presented it to them, and they they would always set me up with somebody. We'd have discussions, and it just wouldn't move. It felt like I was kind of locked down, and so I started looking outside of the traditional pathways. And through an ANA meeting, it was a uh, fall leadership at the Broadmoor. I was chatting with Mark Auden, who's another CRNA, and he was having lunch with Brian Bradley, and I thought, perfect, that's who I need to talk to. So went to the lunch, and Brian was super busy, and I didn't feel like I got much talking time with him, but he remembered who I was. And about uh, eight months later, I was more serious about trying to figure this out, and uh, he took a call from me, and he said, when can you come out? And my wife agreed to come with me, and we uh, got on a plane, went out there. I spent a week going to clinic with him every day, and uh, we chatted about it quite a bit. He had me pick up a couple books before I came, and I moved through what we would traditionally call now, a, you know, a non-academic fellowship, a training that uh, was hand-in-hand or mentorship or a traineeship, whatever term you like to use. And uh, I wasn't in sequence with the um, cadaver labs that were offered, and Brian was taking the fellows at the time from Hamline, now it is TCU's fellowship, and I worked through the same process. And I mentored into practice. We basically worked hand in hand. He gave me assignments. I read them. I, you know, pretty much memorized the two main texts, which are Fenton and Furman. And uh, we used that as a base for uh, starting in the lumbar spine and, you know, and uh, joints. And I worked my way up and sort of every time I got checked off on a, on an area where I'd done enough of them that he was comfortable, uh, I would start doing those on my own. And then we would follow up on two practices. And long story short, I worked my way up through lumbar, cervical, thoracic, and into RF and knees and joints and the full spectrum and uh, took kind of took off on my own. And uh, now I have grown the practice quite a bit and we still work together, but uh, I now have hired another CRNA that works with me and I've had a few rotate through the clinic. We take the USF students and it's been kind of a ride for the last five to six years, but that's uh, sort of where I am now. We have a few locations that we cover. We provide full non-surgical pain management and uh, we have a ketamine infusion clinic. We do direct referral as well as evaluation and uh, we try to help others set up clinics as well. That's excellent, Scott. So what made you interested after doing anesthesia independently in a CRNA-only practice in moving forward with pain? What made pain interesting to you? What, where did you get a, a sense that that would be for you? I got you. That's a good question. So I guess my whole career, when I look back, I've always chosen, I guess, maybe a little bit different path. When I was in nursing school, I uh, worked in the adult ICUs. I'd worked in pediatric ICUs, or I worked out a preceptorship in a pediatric ICU. And I guess I felt at the time like adults were really hard to, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't say 
they're easier to manage than a pediatric patient. Not hard. I don't want to use the term hard, but I felt like I had sort of already gotten a pretty good uh, feel for how to take care of an adult, even in, in nursing school. And I really wanted something that was a challenge and pediatric patients go south on you quick and they're harder to manage. And that's how I ended up in pediatrics. And I think that that has sort of followed through. I continue to find things that are harder. Like I went straight out of my, and, and I was a flight nurse for a while. And then I went straight out of training right into an independent practice, which was a challenge. It was a difficult task. I had done a lot of independent practice while I was in school, but when I got out and went straight into independent practice, it's a different road when you don't have the invisible hand there and you're taking call within six weeks in a, you know, level three trauma center and uh, level two, level three now, but when I went there was a two. And uh, I think pain was just an extension of that. We had a real hard time getting our pain managed our pain patients managed and the surgeons would constantly come to me and say, Hey, can you do this test block? Cause I don't know if this mesh entrapment is a problem that I need to send to a pain guy or not. And they can't get in for two months. So I gotten started and then I became a little more passionate and then that kind of turned into a, I need to do this. And then once you get headed down those pathways, everybody sort of vibrates at a different frequency. And for me, once I start heading down a pathway until I get it done, I'm just going to stay on it. So now when you just rewind back to where you went to anesthesia school, we talked about it Midwestern and, you know, I teach there, you and I just finished a weekend course teaching all of the residents plus the uh, CRNAs that came for the weekend, regional anesthesia. After you graduated from Midwestern, did you feel relatively well prepared to walk into this independent practice? You know, it's a, it's a great point. I, I often tell folks that I did zero research before I went to a CRNA program. I was working at the Oregon Health Science University, and I worked specifically at Dornbecker Children's Hospital, but I'd been there long enough that, as I always say, I was in the good old girls club. I could go to just about any unit, and I was able to work and, you know, interact with them. And um, OHSU was starting a program, but they didn't have it set yet. And once I had become a flight nurse, I'd been very independent. I mean, the first time I had a big code on a plane, I picked up the sat phone. I looked around. I was like, you know, and I realized immediately no one is going to fix this but myself. And I fixed the problem. We landed. And that was the moment in time that I realized that, you know, you are an independent person in the air. Yeah, I could maybe have helped with some type of a call. But when you have, you know, somebody in an ICU on the ground, they don't know what's going on. They can't see the patient. They can't fix it. You have to fix the problem. So I kind of carried that over into training. And here at Midwestern, um, I, I say here because we're here now, uh, I was able to function in essentially independent practices at every clinical site location. The only place that was not was the Arizona Heart Hospital. And at that time, the training was fantastic. We did, you know, hearts and vascular cases, and we were allowed to effectively work up the patients and run the case. And there was little hands-on unless something was headed in a way they didn't like. Um, so I left the practice ready to go independent practice. It was definitely a leap to go from taking call and working and always having somebody with you to essentially being it and having to negotiate with surgeons and having to come in and manage the cases and come up with a plan that fits the group's you know, overall management of patients, you know, if they don't do a certain block and you start doing that, it can cause a problem. So you have to learn how to function within a group and, you know, move into independent practice. But for me, it was a great transition. I couldn't imagine of doing it any other way. And once you head down that path, there's essentially zero chance you're headed back the other direction. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I think that once you've gotten to that point where you're doing things on your own, you recognize that your training was more than enough to make you capable to do so it's difficult to go back to any kind of a situation where you end up being someone's assistant. I think that's complicated for anybody. It wouldn't matter whether you're a physician or a CRNA. Um, if, you're, if, if you're capable of doing these things on your own, it's very difficult to be under someone's thumb. So I can, I can totally see that. Now, once you finished uh, and started working in Oregon, there must have been a, a, a trigger point where you thought to yourself, I think I'm done with doing full-time anesthesia and I'd really like to branch out into this new thing, which is pain. And as you and I have talked about many times, pain is not the same as anesthesia, although there are definitely crossovers. At the end of the day, pain is a different sort of specialty, and it takes a little bit of work to get there. So when you decided, what made you decide that you wanted to go to what would effectively become a full-time uh, chronic pain management job? Yeah, I think... For me, initially, I thought it would be a part-time deal, uh, and I had these ideas that the hospital I was at was going to jump at this program because there was a huge need, and this was pre-national you know, national opiate crisis. We all knew as providers that it was a problem because we saw it all the time, but it wasn't a national problem yet. I kind of 
preempt. I, I was just before that wave that occurred. And I thought, well, you know, maybe if I got, you know, 50% of the week was pain and the rest of the time was anesthesia, that'd be ideal. I liked where I lived. I liked the practice. We had a great group. And there was just factors within the administration that took place that kind of pushed me out of there, if you will. And when I went to Montana, I was very worried because Montana is not the kind of place where there's lots of work. You know, you kind of have to be within the group and people have to like you and you have to get along and you have to be kind of a known, you know, quantity to be able to function. So uh, when I went there, I thought I initially had was contracted for two days, uh, three days, I'm sorry, three days a week. And I thought, oh, boy, what am I going to do with the rest of my time? And I immediately recognized that moving into this area is a, about as different from anesthesia as anything you can imagine, meaning putting needles uh, blindly in, into the epidural space or even with ultrasound guidance to figure out your levels or whatnot when you're doing OB is so much different from placing chronic pain management blocks and dealing with patients and troubleshooting and coming up with a working diagnosis and the whole process that I always often tell folks, I've never been so emotionally tired. Like I was not physically tired when I got home. My brain was full and done and there was so much to learn and it is still the same way on a daily basis. There's not a week that goes by that something doesn't present after six years of doing this that I, I haven't either seen before, I haven't had to manage, or it's something that I have to learn and it's continuous in pain. It's, and it's the same way in anesthesia to a certain extent when you're changing some of your clinical practices, but pain has been all consuming. And although I still do enough OR work to keep up my skills, it has been a, a continuous learning process and gaining skills. And I think that teaching helps quite a bit because I have to really consider how do I teach someone to do this same block in a way that is easy to accept and understand and uh, gain the skill set. So you know, having said that, I think I've gone full circle from being a complete neophyte up to the point where I wouldn't consider myself the preeminent expert in the field, but I think I'm pretty darn good at it. And I think I have some ideas about how to train folks in providing interventional pain procedures. So when you made that decision, you, you decided to do pain, what would you say was the largest hurdle for you transitioning from anesthesia, working independently, doing all your own anesthetics to pain? Because, you know, as we both know, Pain is a much more of an investigative process than maybe anesthesia. As people present uh, for the, the OR for anesthesia, you generally know why they're there and most of their history. People present to your pain clinic and they say it hurts here. What can you do about it? So what's your, what allowed you to make those steps to feel confident seeing patients in the office, transitioning them to a procedure or not, or putting them in a pain clinic like a ketamine clinic, those kind of things? What what process of training you feel that you, you, that really made you make that leap? Well, I think it's the strong mentorship. You got to work with somebody who is extremely good at the end of the day. If I did not have the mentorship from folks like Brian Bradley, you know, uh, Keith Barnhill, um, a number of other providers in the field that while they may not do everything, they have very specific and, uh, you know, uh, influential knowledge in an area that you can call them, ask them a few questions, and they can really bring you around to what you need to know to do the job. That's the first thing. The second thing is you got to have the support, meaning you are effectively disengaging from a full-time an clinical anesthesia job and relearning an entire new field. I shouldn't say relearning, learning an entire new field. So, you know, for me, I had to have the support of my family. I had to pack up and move. I had to sell everything I had. It was a lot more of an investment than what I had initially envisioned. And I can remember we had a discussion and you're like, I think you're totally crazy. You're literally selling your house, packing everything, moving to Montana, no guarantee of a job. And you are that into doing this. And I remember thinking, well, I didn't think of it that way, but uh, <laughs> um, that's what it ended up being. And, you know, it's turned out to, you know, it's gone really well. It's, it's, it's worked out way better than I ever thought that it would have. Uh, it's turned into definitely a full-time job. I thought I was going to be supplementing it with anesthesia. Um, but I would say that the, the key number one thing to anybody trying to be successful in this field is you have to have collaboration. You absolutely have to have it. Um, we kind of operate in an area that's a little bit gray in that while we have two fellowships uh, at USF and TCU, um, the capacity is the demand is greater than the capacity right now to train. They both have shut off their fulfilled their spaces and shut off their admission the last, you know, two years, as far as I know, I can't guarantee that, but that's what I've been told. So that means that, you know, we still have this great 
need for training. And that is ultimately where the rubber meets the road. If you do not have strong mentorship to move into this type of, uh, uh, clinical practice, it's going to be a struggle. And it, I would say that, you know, that the safety is not there from a quality standpoint. So when you look at what someone would need to do to get into, into pain today, you know, I think that, uh, all the injections are relative technical skills. I think you can learn that with people mentoring you pretty quickly. What options, though, are there for people who want to get into pain to teach them the full scope of pain practice, which is much more than just driving needles in under a floral machine? What options are out there today, be they courses, be they fellowships? We talked about the TCU and the USF one. What else is there out there currently? Well, there are a number of uh, folks across the country that offer uh, mentorship into practice or traineeships. It's usually a process. Our particular process is that, you know, you have to be able to at least complete some didactic work first, show the basic aptitude to do the work, and then you have to, you know, come out and, you know, meet with us, you know, at some point. It has to be a, you know, a quality relationship. And as you can imagine, there are folks that you interact with that, you know, for whatever reason, you're just not on the same, you're not in sync, you're not in the same wavelength. And while you might want to help somebody out, you have to have the type of relationship where it's going to be synergistic and collaborative. And sometimes it just isn't there. So, you know, there's people kind of shop around, if you will. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a whisper network. It's known that there's people that, you know, offer this type of training. Um, but those are the basic options outside of the standard routes. I mean, the ANA has um, discontinued the Jack Neary series of courses. So at this point, the courses in pain are from CE2, which is our company, and um, from Maverick. And we both offer very similar lumbar, cervical, thoracic, you know, that type of, you know, training, didactic. It'll get you the basics you need to get started. But, you know, sometimes, you know, and you kind of mentioned that, you know, anybody can drive needles. And I'm not saying that no one can't, but what I would say is outcomes are highly dependent upon the quality of your work. And, it's, it's a challenge because I do a lot of case review and I'll look at stuff and yes, the needle is in the space. Yes, there was an epidurogram that was documented. However, the flow, the quality and the outcome was not what you would have wanted based on the patient's presentation when you do the case review. So what I'm saying is, is sometimes the mentoring makes a big difference when you're talking about outcomes and quality and where you place the injection. I would argue that most folks place the injection in the general region where it's supposed to be, whether it's four, five, five, one transfer family interlam. I mean, that's a whole different discussion, but sometimes it doesn't really match either the imaging and, or the physical exam that they're documenting. So there are things that if you had someone mentoring you and they give you those small key insights, sort of the invisible hand you had when you were training as a resident, it makes a big difference in your long-term development and outcome. And there are folks that if you don't have that, I sometimes call it genetic you know, isolation or genetic variation or genetic drift would be the term where you have an isolated population that because they do something the way they've always done it, it becomes the norm, just like normalization of deviance, and they don't change. So you, I, I've had folks come train with me I've been doing blocks for five plus years and the type of injection they were doing, they had misidentified levels or the end result, meaning their epidurogram was not what it should be. And when you show them, they go, oh my gosh, that's what it's supposed to be. And they get this little aha moment. They make, and it's not that they were having poor outcomes. They just weren't having optimal outcomes. Small variances in pain procedures make a very big difference in your outcome. Oh, I think that's totally true. I, I think there is that. There's like anesthesia, there's an art side to placing the needles in pain and it requires volume with that individual being able to say to you, Hey, a little bit more to the right. Those kind of things will make the difference between, I think you pegged it, make the difference between, between, okay, good outcomes. Patients are getting pain relief. They're doing okay. And maybe it lasts for two or three months to optimal outcomes where now not only do they get good pain relief, it lasts a long time and their quality of life increases. And I think that's one of the keys to pain management because a lot of that learning happens both in the didactic phase with the individuals that you're talking with that are training you and teaching you as well. Yes, I agree. So for those people who do end up going to pain, is there as CRNAs, is there a significant difference between, um, Basically how the, our cohorts in medicine are trained to do pain both across the spectrum, because I, I, as I understand it, less than 15 or 20 percent, uh, the number might not be perfectly accurate, are pain fellowship trained that are actually performing pain 
versus what we're doing? What's what are, what what's going on there and the differences? Okay, yeah. So, um, in so I'll kind of start back on your original number. In 2011 to 2013, there was a huge uh, debate and heavy lifting done by our national organization, the AANA, regarding. CRNA's ability to perform chronic pain management procedures. It was codified in the federal register with CMS, but during that time when WPS, which is a Medicare servicer and Noridian were threatening to not pay for CRNA based services, they came out with an initial statement that said that they wanted everybody to be fellowship trained. Well, there was a really quick napkin math analysis done. And the, the initial thought was based on the number of procedures that were done and the number of procedures uh, that were documented and the number of folks that were uh, fellowship trained, about 80% of the pain in the country would stop immediately based on folks training because most people are not fellowship trained, even physicians or any advanced practice nurses. There are nurse practitioners that do this as well. Um, they're not trained. They're not, that's not, not so much they're not trained. They're not fellowship trained. So, you know, that kind of, you know, modified things a bit. Um, it made it a little bit, uh, you know, I should say easier from a lifting standpoint to get CRNAs into the federal register. So when we're talking about fellowships, there is, you know, essentially no difference between the training programs. And what I mean by that is this, uh, our two fellowships, USF and uh, TCU both have clinical components. As of this year, uh, USF has added the clinical component. When they initially started, it wasn't part of their process. Their process was a heavy didactic program with cadaver and simulation-based injections. And folks would go out and find uh, training and mentoring on their own, or some individuals who have already been doing pain were using that as their, you know, didactic backbone because they already had a practice. They've already been doing this for years. They'd already been doing the injections. Uh, the TCU folks have always had a, uh, a didactic, or I'm sorry, a, a clinical component. And, uh, that has been their entry into practice. They are both effectively entry level. Um, I will tell you that in, uh, 2000, I think it was 17. I just reviewed a bunch of articles on this. There was, uh, 36 programs were identified U S physician based fellowships, and they sent out questionnaires to all of them. 29 responded. And when they looked at program directors evaluation of their graduates, over 60% of the graduates based on the program directors, uh, you know, personal evaluation were not ready to go into full pain practice upon graduation. They still needed work basically is what they were saying. They weren't saying they weren't safe to go out and do it. What they're saying is, is that they were not ready for full service, independent, you know, practice, which I would say that of anyone, when you finish a fellowship, we all know this from surgeons, they come out and they're all right, but it takes them a while to get their thing down. It takes them a while to really integrate all the stuff they've learned into their own way of doing it. And they're usually slower for a few years and then they pick up quickly. It's the same thing. You understand the didactics, you understand how to be safe, but you have to get a number of procedures under your belt before you're able to say, I've got this one down, let's move up to the next piece, you know? And I would say the difference in my opinion is that, uh, credentialing varies. So when you finish as an advanced practice nurse from a fellowship, you're sort of looked at as we want to give you these basic procedures and show that you'll be okay. And then you can work your way up, which I think is appropriate. Oftentimes, if you graduate from a physician based fellowship, they're like, well, you did a fellowship. It's carte blanche, go out there and stamp out pain. And so they may have had minimal training in a particular injection, but they go out and do it and they just try to figure it out. And I'm not saying this is across the board, but from the reps coming and talking to us, we know that this happens, right? So having said that, I think that it's kind of odd that we have this different, uh, sort of, uh, postgraduate treatment of, of different professional licensure. So basically when people graduate from their fellowship, or even if they do a course and they get some, um, pretty good mentorship afterward, they're slow painting between the lines being safe, probably relatively safe, know how to keep themselves out of trouble, know how to do all these things that they learned in their mentorship training or fellowship. But in order to expand into that optimal category, they're still going to need some degree of mentorship and training after that time, regardless of what your initials are. Yeah, I'll give you an example. We've hired uh, a new graduate from TCU, and when we hired that graduate, now, we had a process in place, and we've used this multiple times. The process is you start in the lumbar spine. We work you up through those procedures. We do them hand-in-hand. Hand. Usually, we've worked with them already, so we have a basic understanding of where they're at. And they effectively work up through procedures. And as we become comfortable with their initial trajectories, treatments of the patient, their you know ability to troubleshoot their way out of a suboptimal block, then we allow them to effectively get 
signed off on those blocks. Uh, in the last year, that particular individual has completed, before they moved on to lumbar days on their own, in excess of 400 procedures in the lumbar spine, which would include uh, facets, medial branch blocks, uh, interlaminar injections, and uh, transframmal epidural steroid injections. And at the same time, we start training on RF. So we're doing RF of the lumbar spine and RF of knees. And then we'll move them into the RF category. And once, you know, on average, 40 to 50 independent RFs being uh, observed by us, our group, is how you work into RF. And once you get to that point, you're usually given reasonable anatomy, no big, no big, you know, significant degeneration, no big scoliosis, stuff that is, you know, more chip shot stuff that from an RF standpoint, based on your you know, prior performance and your skill set, you're able to work your way up through. And then once you get that confidence, then you just keep working up. And we work into thoracic, work into ribs and joints and get up in the cervical spine. If folks have that, you know, aptitude, there are folks who get training and they get out there working. It doesn't matter if you're a physician or you're an advanced practice nurse and they, uh, the cervical spine is just not for them. It's a lot more expensive real estate, a lot less room for air. It's not something you should be starting immediately. It's your highest risk of having an issue. And, uh, there's safe ways to do it. And, you know, we work folks up to that level, but if someone ever says, you know, I'm just not going to be able to get there. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with working lumbar spine, working on joints, doing RF it's quality work and quality outcomes where you end up with this profession is totally up to you, wherever it takes you. So basically what you're saying is is when people graduate, they need some sort of a stepwise approach, meeting goals, and then moving on to the next portion of that pain practice. And that requires time, training, and mentorship. Yes, exactly. I mean, I look back when I finished my, you know, anesthesia training, I went to an independent practice and I would say, you know, it's kind of a joke. They said, we're going to give you six weeks, no call. And four weeks in, they're like, Hey man, you're going to do great. I'm 20 minutes away if you need a call. Right. But I felt very safe. I had been doing this for a while. I had been doing independent practice previously and it's very much the same. I would never ask anyone to do something they are not comfortable doing. If something occurs that is abnormal or the anatomy is not right or something odd happens, it's already a standard statement. We're not doing this today. We're going to come back and take a look. Sometimes we do the phone a friend thing and we help them get through it. But that's no different than any practice. It does not matter what your training is. If something odd shows up, you bring your colleagues in. That's, that's normal and appropriate practice. It does not matter if you're an advanced practice nurse or a physician. It is totally normal. And that is how you gain the skill set to be safe and competent and take care of people. Right. You know, that, that whole phone a friend idea is... Another word for that's consultation. I mean, you're you're leaning on people who you feel are experts in the field, are competent in the field to help you figure out where you're at in this process. And if you're heading down the right path, so you make the best decision for the patient. And I think that that happens in anesthesia just as it happens in pain. That when you know you get a difficult case and you're not sure what the best anesthetic is for this unusual disease, condition, issue, unusual case, then you call some friends to find out what it is they're doing for that case so that you stay within the lines of safety and take care of the patients. I think that's something that's generally taught in all programs of anesthesia, whether you be a physician or uh, uh, an APRN, a nurse anesthetist, and that ultimately that's just as important for pain. I agree. Absolutely. So at this point, you've done six years of pain. How many procedures would you say, and what are the kind of range of procedures you're doing in this pain practice? So as of August, I went over 10,000 procedures. I've basically been doing nothing but pain full time, meaning I still keep myself in the OR enough to keep my skills up, but uh, I will block anything any day. That's kind of what I always jokingly say. We're open five days a week. Um, I work between multiple facilities. I help people out when they need it. I travel and teach pain. And uh, as on average, we do a couple thousand procedures a year in one of our facilities. Um, so for me, it's been fantastic. I mean, I love it. I'm super passionate about it. I want to go to work every day. That's one thing I love about nursing. I have never had a job where I did not want to get up and go to work in the morning ever. It's always been good. And I've been very fortunate that each time I advanced my career, I hadn't grown tired of what I was doing. So it was kind of hard to leave. You know, I actually love being a flight nurse. And then when I went to CRNA school and did the training, I love being a nurse anesthetist. I like working in the perioperative period. I was super passionate about that and ultrasound and blocks. And I loved it. And now I've moved on to a field that has continued that passion into a new area. What has been fortunate for me is that I was literally on the front end of the, you know, national opiate crisis. And so I went from, you know, being contracted to three days a week and being told by one of the administrators, 
I cannot believe that they gave you three days a week. This practice will never produce that type of volume. And, you know, I did the shake hands and kiss babies things. I created a, uh, a, a document that showed what we're doing and what the type of procedures I was offering. And then my practice partner at the time was full service pain management. So of course, you know, most people knew who he was. So I was able to use that. I felt a little bit like a drug rep. It was kind of crazy because I put on, you know, Montana dress up is a nice button up shirt, maybe a jacket, jeans, and a decent pair of shoes. And I went clinic to clinic and I would just go talk to the primaries and they would kind of look at me sideways like, why are you here? And what do you want? And I, I, it was really weird the first few times, but then it, it kind of became fun because I, you know, told them what I was there to do and told them that the clinic's open and that we can take your patients and that, you know, I have openings and I'll try to see them as soon as possible. And, uh, it worked within, you know, the first few you know, referrals you're going to get are not going to be the best patients that you've ever had in your life. They're going to be the patients who are a real struggle that they've kind of run out of their, you know, ability to take care of them in that particular area. And they're just tough. So they'll send them to you. And at the end of the day, I let them all know, you know, my first goal is to hopefully drop your chronic pain issue by 50%. I'm a 50% person. I think that if I can take you from a six to an eight to a three to a four, that's the difference between laying in bed all day and not functioning or not being able to engage in an employment related activity to at least being able to function through the day and rehabilitate yourself and take care of yourself. So that's kind of my goal. But that whole process of meeting up with people and getting my name out there and the practice being available really increased referrals. And over an 18 month period, we went to four days a week. We went to three days a week, and then it was four days every other week. And then pretty soon it was like, look, we are six weeks out. Any day that you can come, we need you here. So um, while it did decrease my OR days, it really increased my days in the pain clinic, and it made a big difference. It, it, that when you start dealing with this many patients on a daily basis and managing mostly interventions, I, I should have mentioned that earlier. I don't do med management, meaning if I cause a problem, I will deal with it. If I have an RF patient that has post-RF, you know, we call it neuralgia, but it's anesthesia delirosa from the procedure or any other uh, issue, I will do that. Uh, I will deal with them from a med management standpoint. And I have a handful of patients that I do their long-term chronic med management for because they have no family, they don't have a lot of social structure, and I do help those individuals. Um, but having said that, or I shouldn't say help, I do take them on because they have a difficult time getting someone to follow them for their issues. Um, but in, for the most part, we are a procedural-based clinic. We stay coordinated with the primaries, we stay coordinated with the referral group, we have them do their med management, which most of them prefer because you just don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. And I honestly don't want to have to have a you know full-time person who is checking the drug registry every day to make sure that what we're doing is okay. So we we don't do that side of the practice. So um, it's picked up enough that you know once you're hiring a couple other people and it creates room for folks, meaning we've created enough capacity to bring more folks on, um, I really enjoy it. We're growing the practice. We're trying to uh, you know further the reputation that you know, CRNAs have developed for the last, you know, 100 plus years, but specifically in pain for at least 30 years and interventional pain specifically. We're just trying to promote that. That's my goal. I just want to keep that up. Yeah, that's really interesting. The whole process is interesting about how to transition to pain, all the stuff that you've done to build that practice, which I think is very similar for anyone who's putting up a shingle and starting a practice. You've got to find a way to bring patients into the practice and and basically let people in the community know the ser- the new services are being offered. I, I think the other side of it is what services you're offering. So in your pain practice, you mentioned you did ketamine clinics. Tell me a little bit about ketamine clinics and what they're for. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit more about the other services you're Okay. All right. So specifically, uh, we started a ketamine infusion clinic uh, approximately four years ago. I had received numerous referrals. And at the time, I was getting into my third day of being pretty full. And it really wasn't something I wanted to take on. And to be quite honest with you, the pie, when you get a referral that is more than three inches thick and it looks like an old encyclopedia, it may not be the one you want, meaning it's going to be a challenge. You have somebody who's really not been addressed properly by the medical community. They're not getting what they need generally. We're unable to take care of them properly, meaning they continue to show up because whatever the issue is they have, we just haven't addressed it yet in general. So I would review these and go, oh my goodness. And they were from town and they were driving about six hours round trip to get an infusion. So finally, you know, there's heavy lifting involved. I got to come up with a protocol. I got to go to the administration. I got to get it all set up because I'm not a freestanding office clinic. I'm in a hospital. So I was able to 
get together with the administration. I identified the need. I identified the problem and I came up with a protocol. Uh, we moved forward. I used the available evidence at the time and we opened up a ketamine clinic, meaning we took these referrals. Uh, we started, you know, with the infusions, of course, when you start ketamine, now it's, you know, more mainstream, but four years ago, when you start ketamine, everybody thinks it's going to turn into animal house and people are going to be running down the halls, attacking people. And that's just not what's going to happen. You know, um, we all know if you work in anesthesia and you're doing colons or whatever you use ketamine for, which I've been a ubiquitous ketamine user for years in, in, in small dose, what we used to consider subtherapeutic dosing, you know, uh, 0.2 to 0.5 per kilo, those types of doses for chronic pain patients. And that sort of thing is really what you're giving somebody over roughly an hour. Sometimes it's a little more depends on how high your dose gets and how they respond. But really, you don't expect much to happen for 20 or 25 minutes, and then they'll start to feel it, and it comes on. And for the most part, you're looking for a number of things. You're looking for that. I what I generally tell patients, which is easier for people to understand, is I'm trying to shift your neurotransmitters, much like the other drugs that you use are generally block, blocking serotonin and norepi, and they're affecting the synaptic cleft and the way your body processes these neurotransmitters. And what we're trying to do with ketamine is we're trying to do a number of things, but we're not trying to block necessarily serotonin or norepinephrine. We're working on the NMDA receptor and we're looking for a glutamate surge. And I kind of talk them through the process of what we're looking for. But in general, most of them, just like their other meds, they don't care about those things. They just want to feel better. They want to be able to get up and function. The three things we use it for are uh, chronic refractory depression or treatment Resistant depression are the two main terms. CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome, which there are two types, type one and type two, and for PTSD. A lot of my initial patients were veterans or victims of abuse that had significant PTSD, which does lead to depression because they're unable to function. They're unable to sleep regularly. They have hypervigilance issues. They can't go out in public. They can't get back to their normal life. And I can tell you the the results in some patients that are responders uh, is ridiculous. They have literally stopped coming to the clinic and getting infusions. They're back to their life. They pop in every once in a while. Their whole family's better. And I think that when you have those patients, it drives the practice, it, meaning it makes you want to do it more. Because even if it was one out of 10, I'd take the risk. I'd take the odds because when you're suffering to that level, you're non-functional. You're not getting up. You're not going to work. You're not engaging your life. You're not in relationships. You're not with your kids, all those things. So um, it's been a very you know uh, positive thing for our clinic. The nurses love coming down and doing the infusions. We are, we're set up such that our infusions are running while I am doing interventional pain procedures. So so for example, if you think you're going to make a lot of money doing this in an area that has a high government insurance, meaning Medicare and Medicaid, it's just not going to happen. It's not for me. It's not a revenue driven issue for me. It's, you know, it's a very, really a value added service. By the time you get paid by any of these entities, if it breaks even, that's great for the most part. Um, sometimes it does not. Sometimes you lose some. But, you know, the cash payers and the private insurance that does uh, cover this and oftentimes after peer review with people who are chronically dealing with either CRPS, uh, chronic refractory depression or PTSD and they're non-functional, they are able to get or we are able to get together because I do the peer review approval for ketamine. Now, having said that, it doesn't work for everybody. I'd say, you know, I don't say it's 50-50. I'd say maybe... 70, 30, 30% of the time you work through the loading period and folks just do not get the response that you hope for. I believe this is a whole side discussion, but I just believe that it has to do with their ability to avidly bind uh, ketamine to the NMDA receptor and hang on to it long enough to you know make that change. Someday we'll probably find some genetic test of responders and non-responders, but the folks who respond, it is phenomenal. So it's been a really positive thing for our clinic and the community. And we honestly have people who come from all over the state and the region. And I actually have people who fly in and have infusions with us. And uh, it's been a, you know, ketamine infusions are the real deal when it's the right person and right, right diagnosis. So you would say that it's a function of working those patients up initially, assessing them to determine what their success rate is going to be in order to get the best possible option. Okay. Absolutely. And I should mention one more thing. I, we do not provide the only thing that I'm comfortable making a working diagnosis on, because these patients have oftentimes been already through multiple subspecialists is CRPS type one and two. If they have chronic refractory depression, or if they have PTSD, those patients need to come with a diagnosis in hand from their primary care provider. They need to be already organized with psych. Everybody does this differently, but I'm providing a treatment that needs management by someone else. And that is just not what we're set up for. We 
don't have bandwidth for that. So our clinic is much more collaborative than the average clinic that's out there. The average clinic that's out there is either housed oftentimes in a psychiatric type practice, or it's an independent clinic. And those folks are working those individuals up. So we don't make those diagnoses. We work with people who come with that diagnosis and paperwork in hand. So we are effectively an infusion service. Are you guys doing any of that nasal ketamine that has come out? And what is your opinion on that? So, Spiriva, I know we are not. And here's, you know, and, and uh, this is my opinion. Spiriva, it, it works, or S-ketamine, I'll just say that, because it's probably going to be, that's just the delivery device that makes it its own issue, or makes it its own drug. Um, I will say that for the right people, it probably works great. Right now, the protocol that has been approved by the FDA is that it has to be kept, it's, con- it's a controlled drug, it's not something you prescribe and send home with individuals. There are folks who have it and who blog about it, but in general, they're either married to or closely associated with the prescriber, so they're able to do it outside of a clinic. The way it works now is you present to the clinic, you get your nasal injections, and then you leave. It's more or less, it's almost like having an infusion center that you show up to every once in a while. Now, there may be other management of the process at this time, and they may be doing it differently, but from what I understand, because we don't use it, that is the process. It wouldn't really work in our area. My issue is the cost. For the last research that I did when it first came out, in the last, you know, within the last 10 months, is that it was roughly $589 for one, uh, you know, a vial or bottle. It's a, it's a, a nasal spray. Uh, so at 600 bucks and that's cost. So if you take your average markup of two to three to 10%, depending on, or I'm sorry, 10 times, uh, the cost of the drug, depending on what you're dealing with, you have a effectively a nasal spray drug that costs more on average than three plus ketamine infusions and how many uses out of it, it must have a tip that is disposable because when you shove it up somebody's nose, you're not going to stick it in a cooler and come back in two weeks and use it again. So I'm not, and you'd have to have it locked and secured and you'd have to have a place for those things. So I don't see that as a viable option for anything that we would be doing, but I do know that ketamine clinic folks are using it. I see it on Facebook sites and blogs quite a bit. An interesting transition we're going through with uh, ketamine going from uh, veterinarian medicine and uh, very rarely used in human anesthesia to all of a sudden it being used all the time in human anesthesia and now transitioning over into a pain practice, psychiatric practices, and uh, even, uh, you know, even, even that kind of depression level uh, refractory to medicine, medicine's traditional therapies and moving down that path. It's, it, it is a big transition. It's pretty interesting to watch. Now we talked about, the ketamine clinic. What other what other types of services are you guys offering through your through your different clinics you go to? Now you mentioned you were in a hospital in one, but is is it always in a facility like a hospital? Do you do standalone on your own? Do you have your own procedure um, surgery center? Do you go to a surgery center? How does that all work? Okay, so the three standard places I'll just kind of cover that really quickly is a hospital, a surgery center, and an office. Those are the three basic spots. And there's boutique stuff. You can travel to people's homes. You know, you can do all those things. You just need to make sure that your scope of practice in your state, as well as your insurance is going to cover you from that standpoint. Having said that, I've done just about everything. So, um, meaning, uh, I always jokingly say if, if you can see it well with imaging and I've done it before, or I can learn the block, I will try it. Meaning I'll, I'll give the person a shot. I'm not going to say there's somebody up the road who's better than me at doing this because they do it every day and I'm going to give it a shot. What I'm saying is, is that if there's a block that I can see the terminal trajectories well, I can identify the anatomy, I can work through it with the patient and I can let them know, for example, I do joint injections, you know, and I work with a lot of orthopods and in general they cover most of them, but sometimes for whatever reason, they either the patient can't get in or the orthopods kind of decided, Hey, you know, I want you to have this, if you don't have this injection or if you don't have the surgery, we're not going to do this injection anymore. Right. And, and that's what the patient is telling me. So they'll come to me. So I've, I've had to learn joint injections. I've had to learn a number of things that wouldn't be an average part of a traditional practice. So, um, but when we do these procedures, uh, I would say probably 70% of what I do is in a hospital, um, very minimal ASC work. And then I have an office based uh, practice that I uh, engage in as well. I kind of look at as kind of the natural transition. You never know what's going to happen with hospital work. It can be kind of, even though it seems solid and it seems good, oftentimes folks who, you know, work in hospitals for a while end up going to an office. When your patient base gets big enough, that's kind of where things head, right? Because everybody wants to, you know, be in control of their environment, be in control of their practice, potentially be in control of the revenue. Kind of depends on how you see yourself heading down the path. So I've tried to 
transitioned in each one of those things along the way. Right now, it's a each all of the standard practice methods. I even do injections at home. I've done that, not not necessarily in my home, but I've gone to people's homes and done injections. Uh, some of them are just not mobile. They don't have a driver. They can't get there. They're miserable. They're stuck in their house. That like sort of thing. Call. Yeah, absolutely. I'll do a house call. Um, but then again, you know, I'm in Montana. I give patients a ride home. I have patients who come in that have nobody there and I'll talk to their, you know, daughter or someone on the phone who might live in Washington or California or somewhere. And I'll say, look, we can get them in and I'll run them through what's going to go on. And they'll hang out for the day and the hospital I'll usually give them a muffin and some coffee or whatever. And when I'm going between clinics or heading home for the day, I'll swing them by their house and make sure they get in and they're safe. And, but that's just, you know, kind of a rural practice environment. That's just a little bit different than the average. It's sort of old school house call stuff. But, uh, you know, some, some of the patients that I manage, I literally go and do their home health visit in their home because they can't get into the clinic and uh, I'll check in on them, make sure everything's good. Or I'll call them on the phone. You know, there's not a lot of practices where you give the average patient your cell phone number, but for the most part, I always kind of jokingly say, as long as they're not crazy, I'll give them my number. You know, <laughs> you know, I don't want them calling me every day and going, my toe hurts now. You know, we need to do, we need to deal with this. But, you know, most people are very appropriate when they call. They use it judiciously, and it's only really when they need some help. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of my the average makeup of my practice. So, when you're some of the procedures that you're doing, are you doing – you mentioned non-surgical pain management. But for the people listening that may not be very familiar with pain management – what is the difference between surgical pain management, besides the obvious, you know, an orthopedic surgeon doing something on his spine, and what you're doing? I got you. Okay. So non-surgical pain management uh, came around because it's a very broad term that actually the NBCRNA used, our, our national credentialing organization. And this was in conjunction with providers. And that's because, you know, non-surgical pain management is looking at conservative methods that can you know, get somebody's pain state, uh, you know, relieved, but it is not, does not involve the actual surgical process. Um, meaning it's needle based stuff. Um, anything that's conservative to me is, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, massage, dry needling. I mean, I always jokingly tell patients, look, I don't care if you watch the sunrise and light candles, whatever gets your head squared away so that you can deal with the things you need to do to get through your day and manage your pain. So, um, non-surgical pain management is can be really anything that is not surgery. So for us, it's things like we would evaluate a patient for, for example, if they had post-surgical issues with uh, a mesh hernia repair, and they may have an ilioinguinal hypogastric neuralgia or a genitofemoral neuralgia, and is, the difference between the two is important based on the pain, uh, you know, pain generator and where it radiates into the body. And we can do test blocks on that because oftentimes surgeons are very reliable to go back into a wound that they've already been into. It could be a neuroma, it could be a staple, it could just be that the mesh contracted and now it's tethered the nerve. There's a number of things you can do externally with only a needle hole ultrasound or uh, fluoro to get these folks so that their pain is control because the surgeon's going to go back in and try and find this nerve and ligate it. And we can do that externally. And it's pretty, you know, it's easy for me to say it's easy to go through because I'm not the one under the needle, but for the most part, it's very easy to go through. Patients tolerate it well. You know, while we're on that, I, I don't use anything other than mild sedation. We have a stereo, the patients pick the music and we chat about random facts and just kind of joke around. It's a little bit of jeopardy with the music and we give them maybe one or two of Versed. I eliminated fentanyl from the practice and I say eliminated maybe a couple of times a year. Somebody requires some fentanyl, an aged patient who's super anxious that is already having a lot of pain that's in their nineties. I might give them 10 of fentanyl just to, you know, just to calm them down just a little bit. And they're asking for something. Uh, but I don't normally give someone over the age of 75 much, uh, versed. So we do mild sedation for everything and talk them through it. And people do extremely well. I wouldn't be able to get away with it if people were having problems. You know, the word we get in the community, don't go there. You know, you're going to, it's going to be terrible. And, you know, you know, even though it might work, (laughs) find somebody else, right? Things like, um, stimulator trials like placing the wires in the epidural space for different levels of stimulation pain stimulators is what they're colloquially called you know first of all you go through a process where you you do some blocks to see if it will work then you do these trial stims and then eventually a pocket's created if that all works out and you place a a stimulator a nerve stimulator are you doing any of that kind of stuff at all so I have trained to do those. Now, for where I am, uh, we have a, a guy up the highway, you know, an hour away. And then the main uh, neurospine team that I work with has a, uh, an individual that they like to work with in another town. And so I have pretty much not pursued that in my current practice. However, if either one of those folks leave, I may do that. And the rationale behind that is this. 
Um, I do everything. I always say I pretty much do everything but stimulators. Um, and that's because when someone does something every day, the literature is clear that they are going to be better at it. And I am not trying to do something that I might do once a month or, you know, eight to 10 times a year just so I can say that I did it. I want patients to have the best outcome. So if these individuals, uh, which a couple of them are, one of them is close to retirement, um, were to stop doing what they're doing, I would absolutely step into the gap and take on that work. Um, you know, it's, it's a straightforward process of non-surgical pain management and really of, you know, anesthesia training to use a nerve stimulator to see if it decreases or for instance, twitches or to, uh, to investigate a nerve, if you will, or a pathway, because it's really a pain pathway that you're working on. But you would need to be uh, collaborating with a surgeon because somebody needs to make the pocket and I'm not a surgeon and I don't ever want to be. So um, I'm happy to place the uh, trials, which are effectively much like placing an epidural. You're going to put an epidural needle into the space. You're going to expand the space, a little bit of saline, and you're going to gently uh, place the a nerve stimulator at the appropriate level based on your assessment. Uh, it is a straightforward procedure. It definitely has nuance. There's definitely ways of doing it right and wrong, or not necessarily wrong, but optimal and suboptimal are like the terms that I like to use. And uh, the two individuals that we refer to are fantastic. When you look at their placement, when you look at where they're, what they're able to do, they oftentimes get transforaminal placement where you'll go in at the five and you will get it to trace the nerve as it leaves the frame. And so you're really just focusing on the five. You're not stimulating the whole lower cauda equina. And when they go higher up the spine, they, they're just they're just very good. So it's really difficult to say that I should step in, especially as busy as we are, and take this or try to take some of this work when we have people who do a great job. And so would that be the similar things with uh, interthecal pain pumps, all that kind of stuff? These aren't things you're doing currently? No, I don't. Most of the CRNAs that I know uh, that are managing pain pumps are doing the change outs. They are doing the management of the drug, but they are not placing the pumps. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that it's just fine. Obviously, they're placing the catheters for the pumps. Uh, but it's just for as busy as we are, we really have no bandwidth to add. It's a, it's a more invasive procedure. It takes longer in the day. And right now, pretty much we are booked out every day. And as we bring people on, then we would may have capacity. So now looking down the road in the future, uh, what you see for CRNA pain practice, I mean, as we know, there's a lot of politics and anesthesia, pain, medicine in general, and probably everything in society. But as you look down the road, what's the future for CRNAs performing pain management in hospitals in a similar way to you do it in offices and ASCs? Where is that headed? Is it is it is it going to grow? Will it will it retract? What's what's the future here? Well, I think uh, it's going to continue to grow. It's uh, overall more and more hospitals are constantly asking for this. There's not a week that goes by that I don't take one to multiple calls from uh, nurse anesthesiologists who are in a uh, CRNA practice that they are being asked to add this. And they don't really know where to start. And through social media and other things, folks get your number and you end up taking those calls. There are oftentimes it turns into a consulting call with the uh, administrative team of the hospital. And a lot of times they don't really know how to get there. They got that, you know, we want to go there, but how does that, what does that look like? And I will say that sometimes it turns into, well, you know, you do labor epidurals. You should just be able to start driving these needles. And I'm looking at this list of pricing, and it looks like it's going to be a really good program for us. You know, their performa looks good, but they don't really understand that the biggest gap in all of this is training. It takes a long time. I tell them at minimum 12 to 18 months before an average person is going to be comfortable managing the lumbar spine. And it really depends on your volume. If you're somewhere where you're doing this three to five days a week, obviously you should move up the scale faster. I can't say you will because sometimes folks just take longer, but an average person at 12 to 18 months should be able to manage joints and lumbar spine and then work into the next areas once they get that down. But that involves, you know, multiple courses. It involves cadaver training. It involves a lot of reading. It involves effectively starting your training over like a front loaded program. So I would say that almost every hospital wants a pain program. They have patients that they are sending to other communities that they are losing out of their catchment and everybody wants to control the revenue stream and they want to take care of their patients. So the patients go and, you know, check all the top box on their H caps and go say, rah, 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 I love hospital X. The only way you're going to do that and be able to keep them under the roof is to have all these different services that can manage these patients. Right. But it also has to be quality. So, you know, one of the things that I had a discussion with uh, Scott Becker from Becker's Healthcare about in the podcast 
was that where rural rural facilities are failing at times is trying to do too much at once and not doing not doing a small group of things that they can do really well. And so I think that dovetails well into your statement that, you know, look, these hospitals want pain practices, communities want pain practices. Communities don't want to drive two, three hours away from home, especially when it hurts to sit down in a car for 15 minutes. I mean, that's just not reasonable. But at the same time, like you stated, the training, the mentorship, the process has to be there for that to work well in the facility. And I think, I think that's the key. And, uh, you know, I think you've been saying that the entire, the entire interview. Yeah, I, uh, you and I have discussed this a few times. I'm finishing up my doctoral work in the next two weeks, and uh, I have essentially focused the entire time on non-surgical pain management uh, practice. And what I've looked at is clinical competence and procedural competence, and that's what I've been completely laser-focused on for the last year. I'm probably one of the few people that talks about this all the time outside of the people that write the literature, and so I'm kind of a dork about this stuff. But for the most part, there are ways that um, can be important implemented to credential and check folks off on procedures that involve effectively the equivalent of an oral board. And it's a hands-on as well as didactic board that proves that you at least have the skill set to identify a problem, to engage in an appropriate procedural intervention, and to have hopefully an optimal outcome based on your ability to provide the procedure. Now that all sounds pretty straightforward and simple, but when you look at the number of procedures that are performed in the lumbar spine, the thoracic spine, and you go cervical spine, then you work your way out to peripheral nerves. Then you work your way into the ribs. You work your way into joints. It gets complicated and there's a lot to know and it takes a long time to get these things. And if you're not surrounded by people who can help you get through this, it's a challenge. We, this is not anymore. This is not, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. There is too much emphasis on quality and outcomes in order to have someone say, well, why don't you go try and figure that out? And hopefully after a few patients, your outcomes will increase and everything will get better. You got to be doing it right from step one. So um, that's, and effectively that's what Becker uh, is Scott Becker, right? That's what, that's what he's focused on. He's talking about outcomes in rural facilities. And I think that it's variable because you have to have people who are doing quality work that have had quality training, have the mentorship, and they also have the backup that when they get into something that they're not familiar with, they can either work through it enough to provide a high quality, you know, procedure and manage them in an appropriate way, or they need to know when to say, I'm going to employ this other person and they're going to help meaning they're going to send them off, they're going to refer them appropriately, they're going to manage the patient versus managing them within the facility and maybe getting the outcome they want, but maybe not. So this has been a really good, I think, insight into just what happens with CRNAs doing pain, pain in general, and how to go through that process. Scott, when you look at you know this whole, this whole process that you've gone from novice to expert after doing over 10,000 procedures or certainly in the expert range, what would be your advice to people who are going to consider getting into pain at this point, be them physicians or CRNAs? What would be that, that one thing you'd tell them they really, they really need to know, if you could know when you look back? Sure, sure. I mean, I think that if I had to say one thing, you have to be passionate about this work. You can't just dip a toe in and say, I want to be able to do these two procedures really well. And I'll do that for my hospital because they're asking me to do it. Or I'll do this thing because I've decided that I want to do this. If you're not passionate about it, if this doesn't light a fire under you and really engage you, like hopefully everybody in anesthesia practice is, you know, I mean, it's a awesome responsibility that we have. It's a great opportunity to take all the skill set that you've learned and your hands-on skills and really, you know, provide quality outcomes for our, you know, friends, neighbors, our family, our communities. And if you're not passionate about this, it's just, it's going to come through. And for me, like I said earlier, every day I wake up, I'm happy to go to work. I love it. And I think that the only way you can really decide if you're going to be passionate about this is you got to take a course. You got to show up and say, is dry, you know, is this going to be for me? If, am I going to be able to really take this on, really take the next step, drive these needles, provide the procedures, learn physical exam, learn working diagnosis, figure out how to provide a high quality uh, procedure and then manage them on the back end. This is not a block shop. This is not uh, patients show up with written, you know, uh, uh, procedures that you must perform and then they go get managed by somebody else. That's not the way I see it. So if you want to do this, you need to have passion. And that's, that's the only way you can figure that out is if you either go observe or you work with somebody who's doing this or you take a class. Scott, I think you're 
your community is lucky to have you in Montana. And I think that it's lucky that those hospitals have the ability to offer this service because you're there. Otherwise, they would probably not have that opportunity with you and your your partner, Mr. Bradley. At the end of the day, you know, you've you've said you have to have a passion for it. You've got to have the training. There's got to be mentorship. And there's also got to be some help negotiating this pathway to even opening a pain practice. So if people that are listening to this podcast want to get in touch with you about either taking the pain course through CE2 or to, you know, how, how can I have you come and consult with me or how can I get a consultation with you to train to, for training or to even help open another pain practice. If facilities are looking for these pain practices to bring into the rural area and they, they hear this podcast, they think, look, I want that kind of quality, passion, and training here so that we can make it successful. How do they get in touch with you? Oh, good question. So, you know, any uh, member of the Nurse Anesthesiologist uh, Facebook page can just get a hold of me through there. You can message me on Facebook or social media. Um, you can contact us through our CE2 website, which is just uh, CE2, the number two, Y-O-U, CE2U.com. And uh, other than that, you know, it's sort of word of mouth. Anybody who works in the community should be able to get a hold of me. I can give out my number, but I don't really want calls every day. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, you know, for the most part, if people are looking for the ground level view, I drive quite a bit and I usually call back everybody in the evenings and we have, I've had, I, it's been great because I've had the opportunity to talk to folks all over the country and I give them, you know, sort of a view of uh, what I know about their state, for instance, or the type of practice they may be involved with and give them some advice on how to get started. So that's usually how folks get a hold of me. Thanks, Scott, for being on the podcast. I appreciate the information. I think it'll be very useful to our listeners. I think it'll also be eye-opening to a number of other listeners that maybe don't do pain practice or maybe aren't in anesthesia or not as familiar with both CRNAs and physicians who provide pain services across the country, especially in rural areas. Thanks so much for coming. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 